many people think this whole barefoot idea is a fad that only started very recently. And many people think that it started around 2009 with the book Born to Run. We're going to talk to someone today who predates that by a long shot. He is the original barefoot doctor, and you're going to be blown away by the things that he was doing before people even knew this was a thing. So that's today's episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, typically starting, you know, feet first, those things at the end of your legs that are your foundation. On this podcast, we break down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the outright lies you've been told about what it takes to run, walk, play, do yoga, crossfit, whatever you like to do, and do that enjoyably, effectively, efficiently. Did I say enjoyably? Wait, I know I did. It's a trick question, because look, if you're not having a good time, you're not going to keep it up. So find something you like to do. I am Stephen Sashin, co-founder, co-CEO of Zero Shoes. And we call this the Movement Movement Podcast because we're creating a movement about <laughs> natural movement, letting your body do what it's made to do. And the movement part involves you. And it's really simple. Just spread the word. But you know how that works. You can go to our website, www.jointhemovementmovement.com. There's nothing you have to join, actually. That's just the URL we got. There's no secret handshake. There's no song you have to sing. But that's where you'll find previous episodes of the podcast. You'll find all the ways you can find us on social media, all the places you can give us a review and a thumbs up and a like and leave, hit the bell icon on YouTube to make sure you hear about the future episodes. Subscribe to get future episodes. You know the gist. If you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. So uh, I'm really looking forward to this. And let's get started. Dr. James Stockson, A, welcome B. Tell people who the hell you are and what you're doing here. For your viewers, I'm the barefoot running doctor from way back. And so there's a lot that I've done over the course of the last 37 years. But I think one of the things that matches what your viewers are looking for is that I started training my athletes barefoot in like 2000. I think it's so we're talking about what, 23 years ago. Yeah. And, and backing up a little bit. What would you, describe what you were doing prior to that and how you got hip to this idea to begin with? Okay, I think it goes way back to the beginning when I first got out of practice. I just got lucky. I'm 24 years old. I'm a licensed doctor, chiropractor at 24. And in walks Ed Cohen. If anyone knows powerlifting, Ed Cohen. I for people, God, who, for good, people you know? who don't. Pause there. Describe Ed in a couple of sentences. Ed is a miracle. But yeah, say something about who Ed is for people who don't know in a way that's going to make them go. Here's an example. When you have a powerlifting meet, you have about, you have two days. One day for the lightweights and the heavyweights, they add weight each time they go up. So as you get to heavier weight, when they're doing their lifts, they're at, let's say, a, a guy who's six seven. 300 pounds, 12% body fat, who's a linebacker for some football team, uh, competitive powerlifting, squatting 800. So when you see a like a giant like that, everybody's, oh my God, look at how huge he is. And the weight is, and the bar is bending, and everybody's going crazy. Oh. And then the last lifter is Ed Cohen. So the previous lift was the 800. And you got this guy who walks up that's five foot six. No. Ed was shorter than that. Ed was, <laughs> Ed was like five four. Yeah, no, I actually we'll give him five six, but okay. Ed walks up five foot six and two twenty, and these guys were the weight classes go to two eighty and three hundred open. You could be as big as life gives massive human beings with chests that are literally like this big. Ed walks up at two twenty, five foot six, and they rack the bar with nine. 20 on his opening lift. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and so 
When I was a, a fresh graduate, I went to the world championships and I'm thinking, he took his shirt off and I, I said, what is that? <clears throat> he goes, oh, the bruises? I said, yeah, because I don't go to the gym with him. He comes to the office. I said, what is that? He goes, oh, those are just my blood vessels exploding when I'm with this pressure on my body with the 960. <laughs> and then his second lift, he goes up with 965 in the squat. I don't know if you've ever seen 965 pounds, but you can't even push it across the ground. It's massive amount of weight. And you've got six guys, three on either side that are about 300 pounds spotting the actual bar. And then a guy behind him that's probably 300 pounds behind him just to make sure that if he missteps that they're going to be able to pull the weight off of him. But what scared me was that I was thinking like, what if he doesn't lift it? What if he passes out? It's possible. And the bar comes down on him. It would literally kill him. And also, I'm in charge of the health of this athlete. He's required at the world championships to break additional records in six months. Because that's what you expect from, you have, <laughs> in powerlifting, weightlifting, you have nationals and worlds. And you have to qualify. If you won the nationals, you go to the worlds. But every year you have to qualify for the world championships by going to the nationals. Ed Cohen is like the Michael Jordan of powerlifting. He broke 71 world records. So getting back to the what we used to do is that I said, after I saw that, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to keep this guy healthy? And I can't wait for him to have an injury because he did have injuries. That's why he came to me. I said, I'm going to start from the bottom, regardless if he has pain or not, at the foot. And I'm going to check every single, you know, joint of his foot, his ankle joint, his calf, his thigh, his TFL, his hamstrings, his hips, every single inch of his body. And I'm going to remove every single muscle tension from it, every single bit of inflammation from it so that we didn't get to that point where he had an injury. And it worked. Over the six years that we worked together, he not, didn't have one single injury lifting those massive heavy weights. He was grateful. He, like I said, he broke 71 world records and we're still friends after now going on 37 years. I talk to him every day. So that's where it gave me the idea that lower back pain, Cracking FL spasms, iliotibial band issues, <laughs> chondromalacia, shin splints, plantar fasciitis, all came from the foot. For So for 30-something years, every single patient that walked in the office, we did a video of their gait and analyzed their walk. And then brought these cameras to those clunky video cameras yeah. to the All-African Track and Field Championships where you're sitting in a track in Algeria, which is a rough place, Muslim country, but it's cool. Nobody bothered us, but it was a little different and it's okay. But you're on the track and you're videotaping these incredible track athletes from Africa. There was 30 countries there from Algeria, the great runners of, of uh, Ethiopia, and yeah. and what was happening is that as we kept the as I kept applying these techniques from the foot all the way up, they would come back with the coaches and say, "Oh, what happened? He broke a personal best. 
And what did you do? What did you do? And the times kept coming down drastically for these athletes right on the spot. So you would have coaches that all started to watch everything you did while you were treating, like you had an audience of 30 or 40 athletes and coaches just watching everything that you did with the foot and with the body to see what the secret was because the times were just coming down at the meet, like by a second or two, like a tenth of a second or two tenths of a second, which doesn't happen. And when that happened, I knew we had something going because of course, Ed, we don't know whether it's a stretching or what we're doing. If he's just really not injury prone, but we knew he was doing well. But when these things happened at the track and field championships, just before the Olympic games in 1988, I knew that this human spring concept was really fantastic. It was breakthroughs. That's when we did it with every patient herniated discs, chondromalacia, like I'd mentioned, and reset the entire spring mechanism of the body from the bottom and then trained everyone barefoot in the gym to develop a stronger uh, foundation to allow the athlete or the, the patient to bounce off the ground instead of, instead of banging into the ground. You get that? It's okay, we're going to bounce off the ground or spring off the ground when we walk instead of banging into the ground and twisting off the ground, causing all kinds of compression disorders and inflammatory accumulation of inflammation and uh, muscle tension from the feedback loop of the inflammation and just <clears throat> the entire body just, just squeezing down. And of course, when you have muscle tension anywhere in a spring system body frame, you're going to have, the first thing you're going to have is drag on the frame. So you're going to have slower speeds you're going to have drag on the frame which will show up in your for your competitive athletes on slower speeds during hundreds and two hundreds and also distance running as well but the other thing you're going to find is the fatigue starts coming in because the spring mechanism protects does four functions it protects you from the impacts which is your shin splints and the bang and twist Number two, it recycles the energy because if you look at the body as inverted pendulum model, which is like a is like where you reach the leg forward and land on the heel, the old heel toe concept, and then the momentum carries you over that planted leg, which is just it doesn't even abide by the laws of physics. When you try to, they said, okay. Walking is this inverted pendulum, okay? Okay, I get that. How do you explain running then? It's bouncing off of uh, inverted pendulum. I'm like, no, that's springing, okay? So it's not an inverted pendulum. It's an integrated spring system, actually integrated spring mass. The mass is the head that teeters on this spring system, balances on the spring. So the second, for the first thing, like I had mentioned, is protect you from the impacts Second thing is that it, it allows you to recycle energy through the spring system for long distance running. And of course, whatever you put into the spring, you get back. So if you're trying to run fast, you want to get load in as much energy into the spring so you get more out of it. So you have, because like when you look at simple things, just an example would be like my finger here. If I try to 
hit this object with Wait, my you're muscle. Gonna, you're, you're gonna have to describe it because I can't see what you're doing. And of course, okay. people are listening, they Simple. can't see. If I just, um, if I do this, can you yes. see it now? Uh, I can see, but you want to describe it for people who are just listening. Okay. Describe it like using with muscle. That's as hard as I could do it. When well, you so do here, this. let me describe what you're doing for for people. So imagine uh, putting your, <clears throat> excuse me, putting your hand flat on a table and lifting up your second finger and just trying to slap that second finger down on the table. You can only apply so much force when you're doing that. And then use the spring. You can hear it. So the flip side is put your hand flat on the table, lift your second finger up with your other hand and until it stretches and then release and it just springs down. So you're using that, that, that kinetic energy or that potential energy stored in the tendons to just be able to move faster and stronger than you could volitionally on your own. This is not a video podcast then, right? It's both. <laughs> okay, got it. All right. The third thing is that the spring system opens up uh, spaces for joints, and that would be your discs and your knees and yours. And the last thing is it opens up spaces for tunnels to allow the safe passage of blood vessels and nerves. Your shoulder is the roof of a tunnel that allows the blood vessels and nerves to go in your arm. And the rib cage is the floor. So that rib cage and that rib cage and that shoulder can start to compress with tension from using the cell phone too much, bad posture can start to compress the uh, thoracic outlet. And that's a real big problem lately because of COVID. And we have a computer in our hand all day long we're looking at, which cranes the neck, tech neck, called thoracic outlet syndrome. If you get that, you're in big trouble because for me, it takes me about, see what you're talking about is that like, for instance, if you have um, inflammation of an area that can be detected by nerves called nociceptor nerves, they're like a chemical receptor that can measure the amount of inflammation or toxins in the tissue. And that's related to the brain. If you drink too much alcohol, you have sensors in your stomach lining that can tell the brain that he's about to die. <laughs> so we need to act very quickly to um, save his life. So that's that becomes a dominant reflex, by the way, where you're going to vomit. And if you try not to vomit, you can't. You have to, It's like people try. I hate vomiting. Everyone does. But it's really not possible to stop it because it's a dominant reflex, which means that you weren't able to handle your situation. <laughs> the brain says, hey, look, get out the way and let me take care of this. And you're not getting in the way because I'm going to save your life and you're going to vomit. So <clears throat> then you have this period of time where you think that you've made it through. But then <laughs> it's going to take a second reading after everything settles down. And you're like, oh, I'm glad that's over with. When it takes a second reading, we're not done yet. And you vomit again. That's a reflex that is um, protecting you. Just like if you have a car accident, you have some inflammation or you run with bare feet with a locked up spring that bangs into the ground and damages your, creates inflammation of the uh, muscles and tendons of your foot, the joints, that creates a reflex muscle action that says things aren't good there, some inflammations. We're going to contract the muscles of the surrounding area till he figures it out. And that's your stiff neck after car accident. When you limp, that's a stiff leg. And so that's a protective reflex. 
The problem is that is a contraction. And when people get a stiff neck, these therapists, they don't think. It's like, when in doubt, stretch it out. If tight muscles stretch, no, okay? I can tighten a muscle when I do a curl. Watch me. Are you going to push it back the other way? That wouldn't be smart. It's the same thing. So why do people stretch muscles that are in a protective state with inflammation? And it doesn't reduce the inflammation, so the circuit is the same. I've never stretched a, a muscle that is inflamed. We just do the deep tissue and the vibassage to move the inflammation out because it's simple. It's the trigger, and the tight muscle goes away. So this stretching thing is just a lack it's just a lack of knowledge it's a lack of insight and it's embarrassing to see therapists on all these tiktok channels and i just cringe when they take the head and they pull it like this for stiff neck yeah. oh my god you're lifting the rib up even higher into the outlet <laughs> making it more susceptible to blockage and clot formation when the rib keeps rolling up into this tunnel where the blood vessels go and, you know, sure enough, in like two or three weeks of doing that, they end up with a blood clot and you're no longer your patient. Okay. They're in surgery. Yeah. You have to understand not only muscles, joints, biomechanics from a high level, but you also have to understand how physiology changes muscle tone. And so that you can, if you don't, somebody can show you a video and they go like this, pulling on the neck to stretch yeah. it to the side. And then you go, oh, that sounds logical. And I'm thinking, no. Because if you get an injury or if you have something that's lingering, it's not going away. If you don't understand it cold, a doctor can tell you anything and you have to believe them. Mm. And I will tell you the mistakes. I'm in the trenches with the worst chronic pain cases on earth. That's all I treat. Okay, now I'm only, I don't do office visits. I do contracts for one week at a time where we take patients that have had like 30 doctors look at them. They, nobody can help them. And things are getting worse and they can't take it anymore. And then they call me and I say, okay, we go through their symptoms, all their findings, all their x-rays. They've already had every test on the planet because nobody can figure it out because they don't touch them. They scan them. So we have plenty of those scans that don't tell you anything. And then we say, okay, we give them an estimate based upon what we've seen before. And the estimates are coming out around five days to get rid of severe chronic pain. And by the way, Stephen, I just sent a pitch deck to the Primus Medical Group in Bangalore, and they had an innovation award. Uh, competition and there were 134 companies that sub that submitted pitch decks and we made the finals on that pitch deck. Why? You know, I would think so. Like you're saying, I can get rid of chronic, severe chronic pain in five to seven days. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> that? that might be an innovation. Yeah, sure it is. We didn't win because Johns Hopkins had an artificial arm that had already won 17 million in they won 17 million in NIH grants and the girl who gave the pitch was brilliant from Johns Hopkins 
from India to Indian judges. So I really thought she was good. I I would have given her the award. She was quite well. She had her pitch down. I don't do presentations on pitch decks very often. So I need to polish up my act on that. But that was one that was one very good thing to see that we actually made it to the finals with that idea. So, uh, so I want to back up. First of all, th- th- there's a whole lot to unpack in everything you said. Um, but the biggest thing I, I just want to reiterate is that there are a lot of ways of attending to the body. I'm going to do that. Wait, I'm going to do this in a different way. So when I spent time with various track coaches, I noticed that a lot of them were clearly just regurgitating something they had heard from somebody else that the drill, my first track coach, the drills that he was suggesting we do, he was either suggesting things that clearly had no relationship to running or sprinting in my case, or they were things that clearly had no real impact. They weren't really doing anything or the way they were doing drills called A skips and B skips. And the way they were being done, it looked like just a bad marching drill. It didn't, maybe it's getting a little blood flow, but it's not really doing anything specifically. And I stopped hanging out with those people, much to their chagrin. And and so what I see a lot in the fitness world and what you were describing is people who aren't looking at the body in a way that where they're really starting from the ground up, and we'll come back to the ground up version from feet, to really look at it with, let's say, fresh eyes. They're doing something they've heard. They're doing something they've been taught. They're not getting in. And like you said, they're not touching someone and really trying to feel what's going on, get some information there. And the interventions they're doing are often things that's that's the way it's been done. So that's the way way we're going to do it. And you found this whole other way of addressing, by the way, um, I don't want to lose this one. You did mention the vibe massage and we'll come back to that in a sec. Um, But if people picked up that word and they didn't know what it was, it's a a tool that you've come up with and we'll talk about that. But the other thing, where do I want to go with this? The other thing is, especially for runners, but also for anyone just walking, the whole idea of the spring mass model for movement is something that could not be more obvious. And I want to dive into that a little more so people understand it more deeply, but not something that people pay attention to. And you give me a flashback. Uh, Glenn Mills, who was Usain Bolt's coach, took Usain from being a 400 meter runner to being the fastest man in the world in the hundred. And when asked what they did, Glenn said, I spent a year working on him to get stronger. So he was a better spring. So he was a tighter spring and was, and like you were saying, getting force when you're putting, applying force into the ground, if you do it correctly, you're getting as much force back out of the ground as possible. That's just Newtonian physics. And if you're using your muscles, ligaments, and most importantly, ligaments and tendons correctly in the spring model, because your tendons are essentially springs then you're getting as much energy back as you possibly can and storing that energy for being used later. Did I get anything that you want to, that you want to clarify from my little synopsis? Yeah. Okay. Here's an example. There are some coaches that talk about spring stiffness and spring compliance. And so <clears throat> spring compliance would be like a jog where you're actually jogging and you're allowing the spring to load deep and slowly and it's good. I want to pause there. When we talk about the spring, what we're talking about is 
all of the structure, musculature, skeletal structure, starting in your feet, your ankles, your knees, your hips, your back, all the really going all the way up to your head. But right. primarily people think about it from like the navel down. You can't because it's a, it's actually a torsion spring. And if you, you do go. from the navel down, you're not incorporating the arm swing into the running gait, which is obviously something very important. <clears throat> and also the head position is because the all the sensory apparatuses in the head. Here's an example. So what we were talking about is that you were saying that they were giving you these drills. What people don't realize is that because they don't, when I was a when I was a student, most everyone wanted to know the muscles they could see, not the ones that function. So you look at the cat, the gastroxoleus, but the ones that are the like I've examined calf muscles and calf for thirty seven years, tens of thousands of visits. I have never in my entire career, very seldom found a a muscle a trigger point or whatever in a gastroc. Okay. Yeah, I've seen a little bit here and there in the soleus, but um, the majority of it are in the tibialis posterior. Like you have this group of tendons that actually form a slingshot, the tibialis posterior, the anterior, the peroneus longus and brevis actually form a slingshot by, by attaching at the back of the calf behind the gastroc and soleus, and they loop around to have strategic attachments, these tendons on the actual arch of the foot on either side of the, of the metatarsal cuneiform joints. Okay. What you're looking at is like a, it's, it is actually a, a slingshot. Hmm. So when you look at, um, when you look at running like the human foot, as if it was the shoulders or the chest area, the human foot is a three-dimensional object that actually has a posture that has to be trained in multiple directions in order for it to remain healthy. Now, if you want it to have maximum spring, there are two factors. Number one, you have to have movement in all 33 joints of the human foot to pull off that spring action. You have to be in really sharp as a practitioner or even as an athletic trainer, as a person that's self-managing, you have to be sharp at knowing all these 33 joints and to know which joints are more apt to lock up or become stiff and how to release them. Okay, so if you're self-treating, you have to know what to look for. If you don't, you're going to bang into the ground and twist. Hey, so off got, I got to pause there and tell us. Now, that's the first thing. Okay, go ahead. So I have to tell a story about that. So when we first met, which was like 2011-ish, I can't remember the specific date, you had me hop up on the table and you started working on my foot. And at one point you, I'm going to try and tell the story in the way that it felt. You manipulated a part of my foot in the longitudinal arch, what most people just think of as the arch of their foot, where suddenly there was a snap. And it had the sound of when you crack your fingers, but it's like a really loud one. But I thought, what the hell just happened? And did you just break my foot? Because I didn't know there's a joint in there that's actually supposed to be mobile. And right. so I freaked out internally. I didn't express that. And then you asked me to stand up and see how that felt. 
And I was, again, literally terrified to get off the table. And as soon as I put my foot on the ground, it's like, oh my God, this feels so much better. I feel like I'm moving better. Like I'm actually using my foot and it was more springy. And now this is one of those manipulations that I do. I don't try to crack it all the time, but I'm making sure that joint that I didn't know existed. And I think most people don't was actually still flexible and mobile. The human foot has um, 33 joints, but the majority of the weight is held on the first and second toe. So where it locks and why it locks is usually when the tibialis posterior gets weak because that's like the strongest muscle that when the foot lands on the outside rolls to the inside, that muscle prevents overpronation, mm-hmm. catches that that longitudinal arch and just springs it off like a slingshot. <laughs> so if that muscle isn't as strong as the the opposing side, which is the peroneal muscles, and if it's not strong enough to handle the amount of force being put through it, then the whole kinematic chain will internally rotate and create inflammation and muscle tension. And then the leg becomes, it has more drag on it. And then you're not going to run as fast. And then you get injuries from there. That's probably overpronation is like the number one cause of every, almost every ailment in the lower body. I want to pause there because many people go into some running shoe store. They are thrown, sometimes they're put on a treadmill where somebody who has been given nominal training or training for a specific reason, looks at what they're doing, says, oh, you pronate, and then tries to put them in a shoe to try to compensate for that. So there's so many people that I've met who think that they have some massive amount of pronation. And what I see when I look at them is, you know, what you're seeing is just the normal spring-like mechanism of the foot. And you've been sold a bill of goods from someone who was able to show you something on a screen, misinterpret it, and then use that to sell you a particular product. Here's another point. Let's say that I have a kid that walks in with his shoulders rolled forward, like a 15-year-old. And I got two choices. Either I'm going to train him in the gym to do some back exercises and well-rounded routine, or I'm going to put a brace on. Obviously, we're not going to put a brace on the kid's shoulders. Some you can buy them on Amazon if you're if you lack intelligence, you will do it that way. But the bottom line is that uh, you don't do that with the foot either. So what we do is we certainly, if you got a herniated disc, we have some pain there. We can't have that overpronation because it actually is causing pain. So we. We do want to limit the pronation just to calm the the area down. But for an athlete, what we would do is we would do the deep tissue to release the spring. Hold on, hold on. Wait, I'm going to pause there again, because what you just said is super important. So you're going to use, and we'll come back to what you're going to do for an athlete. You're going to use posting the foot or keeping the foot slightly immobile, adding some support as a technique for calming things down to let things heal which to the best of my understanding, that's what orthotics were designed for, is to let the foot basically rest while the tissue is taking some time to heal. I, I, w- I would never put an orthotic on any. So, when, so let me rephrase, or then clarify for me. So when what you said that I was riffing on was that you're going to do something to basically let the tissue heal, let that pain settle down before you start working on the foot. So what are you doing in that case? If I don't have, if I've got a 70 year old with an, with a weak tibialis posterior that allows the, the foot to pronate, I could do the deep tissue around that metatarsal cuneiform joint, the longitudinal arch between the 
metatarsocaneum form joint of the of the first and second toe and maybe the third, which is usually the area. It's a pattern. Yeah. And that you could do it on the subtalar joint to keep that area from keep get the movement smooth. And then you are not going to be able to like do zigzag runs and circle runs and side runs on a 70-year-old in barefoot, plus he's diabetic, let's say. So we have a different way to handle that. Let's just stick with mostly athletes. Let's just talk about how we would train an athlete. So what we would do is we would release the spring system uh, by working on the muscles, the intrinsic muscles of the foot to relax deep tissue, to release, push the inflammation out of the muscle into the interstitial fluid space, which is the space between the muscle and the skin. When people do deep tissue, they call these trigger points. We need to get off of that. That's the old way of thinking. Janet Travell, trigger points. There's this mysterious thing called a trigger point, and we could see them and all. And they're really not trigger points. They're actually muscles that are in a involuntary, they have, you have involuntary muscle contractions because there's inflammation there and the brain is controlling the tension on the spring because it's getting a message that there's inflammation in the area and it's, it's, it's uh, contracting muscles of the surrounding area. So this whole thing about trigger points is, is silly. They, these mus- this muscle tension that you call trigger points, at, they, they actually form in predictable patterns based upon how the body moves outside of the normal engineering path based on how it's designed. If it's designed to land on the outside, roll to the inside, and at the same time load into the arch, the force of the impact, <clears throat> and it doesn't do that, that's the normal engineering, then it creates an inflammatory area, and then maybe it's in, up the entire spring. There's a predictable pattern. It's usually first and second metatarsal, the lateral calf area, which is the tibialis posterior, and then the, the iliotibial band, the gluteus medius, and that's the typical pronation pattern, okay? So you have inflammation there. And it, until you move the inflammation out, the pattern remains because the brain decides if they're still getting signals from the tissue that it's inflamed, those muscle, that muscle tension remains. So if you want to just putz around with these rolling, these rollers to roll out the iliotibial band day after day, <laughs> it's, there's a hole in the roof and you put a bucket underneath it. You're it's not how it works. And if you're a PT, you're a moron. Okay, get it straight. Figure it out. It's not, it doesn't work like that. It'll never work. You could do 1,850 foam rollers across the TFL and you're just wasting time. You have to reset the foot so that it, it can get the full impact all through all 33 joints and then you have to rebuild the spring suspension system, which is the tibialis posterior. No, the, yeah, it's tibialis posterior, anterior, and the peroneal muscles, the slingshot. You have to build the slingshot. Why is it the slingshot doesn't work after we get older? Like when we're kids, we run around barefoot all day long. We never have a problem when we're like 32. We have this overpronation. We have to like shore everything up and, you know, we need an orthotic. 
and braces. And it's what I used to call barefoot to bedridden. Okay, I can't figure out how to restore it. So let's put a brace under it, orthotic, and charge you 400 for that. And that will jam the spring from the bottom. And we got the leather from the foot jamming it from the top. And the longer you wear that, the stiffer your spring becomes. And also, by the way, if you don't get, if the arch doesn't descend to stretch these spring suspension system tendons, there's no no adaptation. So they get weaker by the day. And then who argues with me? People who manufacture orthotics. What a shock. We can go head to head on this, but then when I remember I was in this forum and I, this guy was banging on me. I was, it was laughable. There was a lot of people watching this conversation. And then I can't remember what happened, but I said one thing that he couldn't refute. It was like the end of the argument. And he got so pissed off that he screamed and called me every name in the book. And then he disappeared. That was it. It was done. Finished. Okay. Like I said before, you want to put a brace on a kid because he doesn't have strong back muscles. You want to put a brace underneath the arch, like the natural God gave us the arch for spring system to be efficient runners, or do you want to restore it? So the way you do it is with the zigzag runs. Of course, you can put a a cuff on the foot and do low pulley exercises with inversion, eversion, supination, pronation movements to build the muscle up and the tendon will get stronger at, through adaptation, Wolf's Law. Uh, but you've got to get out there and start running. Now, if you want to create an adaptation process for being able to run barefoot, you have to understand that as you, for instance, if we do a proper analysis of the kinema or the body spring system, the lower leg, the first video comes from equal weight on both feet. And so we're looking at impact speeds and how much force is going through the actual lower body. So we would stand with both weight on both feet. So if you weigh 200, makes it easier for the math. You've got 100 pounds on the left and 100 on the right. When we lift the foot off the ground and you have all the weight on one foot, now you have 200 pounds on one side and zero on the other. So then you can put a camera on that patient to look straight up the middle to see if the foot pronates just from lifting the foot off the ground to determine if the tibialis posterior muscle and the spring suspension system uh, slingshot is able to keep the legs straight and not and, and maintain the foot posture during that amount. So you got 200 pounds. When you walk, it's 1.25 times body weight. So it'd be like 250 is the impact through the spring system when you're walking. So when you're doing a gait analysis and somebody's walking, it's 250 pounds of force through the limb and through the spring. Now, when you go to running, there's estimates of three to four to five times body weight. So it'd be like three would be 600, four would be 800, and 910, 1,000 pounds. In between there, in between walking speed, which is 1.25 and 3, is as we start working down the dumbbell rack, I say. If you want to go 
from 40 pounds to 50 pounds, that would be safe and prudent. You don't go from 40 on the dumbbell rack to 80 pounds. And you wouldn't go from walking speed when you're trying to build a, a strong spring suspension system to full out sprinting. You would start by increasing speed and increasing the adaptation of the tendons because that's really what is creating the spring, not the muscles, okay? The Japanese did a study where they put a ultrasound on the calf and watched walking and running. And what they found was when you transition the weight across the limb, the calf muscle remained the same length. Now, how could that be? Because you're landing, that's absorbing an impact and transitioning weight across the limb, and there's the push-off. How could that be? Like, how could the tendon, how could the muscle be the same length? And really what the muscle is doing as we're changing from speed is it's actually tuning the tension on the tendon. And the tendon is stretching, creating the differences in the speeds and the impacts that you have to absorb rather than the muscle pushing because that these impacts at high speeds are so fast that it's quicker than muscles can actually contract. How could it possibly be that people think that the calf muscle contracts and pushes you forward during running? That's not possible. So what I see is if I'm going to step off a curb, the muscle knows for some reason exactly how much tension to put on my calf muscle to absorb that landing. And then it changes the tension on the calf muscle to tune the tendons for walking speed, jogging speed, and running speed. And it goes like jogging is what we call a compliant spring. And sprinting would be a stiff spring where you're more ricocheting off the ground like a super ball, and the muscle tension on the actual tendons is much is stronger because the tendons have a tighter, like a tighter snap to them. And when you run, it's so crazy. Like when, if you and I were running, of course you would beat me because you're the fastest man in the world. You had told me at least fast. No, I'm the second fastest Jew in the world in my age group. I, you know what? I'll be honest with you. I had to be careful what I said there. But the uh, no, it's fine. I used to say that I might be the fastest Jew in my age group in the world, but then I met my now friend, Alan Tissenbaum, and Alan crushes me. Alan is a complete genetic freak who I adore. And yeah, he beats 35-year-olds. He's a machine. Yeah. The, so when you're, when you're increasing speed, let's say, for instance, you and I are jogging. I'm just out for a run. And I just want to just give you some crap. And I say, hey, Stephen... I'll race you to the, the end of the block, okay? Immediately what happens to us is we get this new facial expression. Like, <laughs> we're going to, I'm going to beat him and the face tightens up, okay? The face and then the upper body and the lower body, it just starts to, it starts to stiffen. And we're going to go from this jog thing, which is this compliant spring, and then all of a sudden, we're going to stiffen it and our face is going to change. And <laughs> all of our muscles start to stiffen, which is the tuning, the tuning of the spring system to create the ricochet effect, which is the stiff spring 
rather the compliance spring so that we can get speed out of the spring system versus you have two things. You have the speed, which also makes you more vulnerable to injury. And then the compliant, which is where you get a deeper loading of the spring, which makes it more injury resistant. If you're lying, you left one part of the of that story out though. If you said how hey, race you're doing a block, the first thing that would happen is I would say for a hundred bucks. Yeah. It's stiffer then. <laughs> well, I do the opposite when I'm at track meets. Invariably, there'll be some guy who's twice my size who just looks at me very intently and says, Hey, good luck, man. And I go, Hey, there's no prize money involved. I just want you to have a good time, get to the end of the race, still be healthy. And oh yeah, by the way, I totally want to kick your ass. And I do, I do that because it's like the unspoken truth. We're stupidly competitive, but there's no bonus points for doing it. And let's have a good time and admit that we're each trying to beat each other. So the yeah, you said something I want to back up to. I know this is going to sound silly because people will have put it, can figure it out without confirmation, but I want you to do the confirmation. So we're talking about increasing the strength of the tendons by putting them at a load. You mentioned two things. Um, one, obviously just going from jogging, slowly building up speed because right. that over time will create these adaptations. Um, another thing you mentioned is there's two other things you mentioned. I'll do them one at a time. The, one of the others was zigzag run. And I know it's exactly what it sounds like, but do me a favor, please describe that for people. Well, people think that zigzag run is where cut to the right and then plant the foot and then Cut, use the planted foot to cut to the left and then plant the foot and you back and forth. <laughs> but in reality, a zigzag run to me would be where you have a line on the rope, okay? And what you're doing is what you have to do is you have to stay off the heel, okay? So the way you do that <clears throat> effectively is that the head and the upper body are thrown into the direction that you're changing. If I'm running, if I'm running down the path and I want to cut to the left, what I'm going to do is what Michael Jordan used to do and all these great athletes. You've got, you've got a choice of planting and pushing off, or you, what you can do is ease much easier to stay on the forefoot as well, is that you throw your head in the direction that you're going. And then because the head and the upper body is ahead of the spring, you're automatically on the forefoot, you're automatically on the spring system, and the foot will not, the muscles won't tighten up. They're just going to bounce the body in the direction that the mass is traveling. So there's no tension moving you there. You're just using like, you're in a controlled fall state. You're using that controlled fall to keep the tendons from tightening while they're actually uh, absorbing this impact force through these tendons and adapting without tightening the muscles more than they have to just to maintain the tension on the spring to get the safe impact through the spring to that direction. So then if you're going to the left, you just throw your body to the right and then your body like turns to the right with the head and the shoulders leading and the foot remains behind the mass. The body is ahead of the spring so that you're always on the forefoot. And that's called the controlled fall. 
And that's why athletes, when they load up in the blocks, they're, they're low on low to the ground. They're already falling. And you see also, this is crazy. That's that lately it's happening where there's a really tight race. And I seen it with a couple of ladies where it was a very important race and they were neck and the girl just thought I'm going to fall over the finish line. And when she did, she beat the other girl, but she was behind her. But when you fall forward, you have gravity pulling you and the spring energy speed at the same time. It adds speed to the uh, body part by simple applying gravity to it. So I remember like when I used to run fast, when I wanted to run faster, all I had to do is lean forward more to get more of a controlled fall, but at the same time, not lean forward at the waist and tighten up my back muscle. The whole body would be leaning forward at the ankle. The whole body would be, you know, fairly straight and leaning forward at the ankle so that you don't, if, cause if you lean, if you bend forward at the waist, you create a muscle tension within the spring system that creates drag on it and tight tightens it up so that it can't, get the maximum spring out of the body spring. When you bend forward at the waist, when you're trying to get that controlled fall effect, you've caught, you can't bend forward at the waist. And that's where you get maximum spring and not using muscles. And that creates the tendon strength. And if you want, uh, the tendons are where the tendon strength is where the snap comes from and the speed and the efficiency because muscles burn energy. You want to crap out at 95 at 95 yards or do you want to get a boost like the spring doesn't get tired tendons don't get tired they're non-contractile element so, so if you use them you're gonna you're gonna have an advantage there so two things or maybe more than two things one backing up to just zigzag run instruction you gave the good example for what you're going to want to do to move shift to the left shift to the right so it's not just bouncing from one foot to the other but you're going to have a it doesn't have to be some predictive amount of strides where you have leaned to the right and you're on the right side of that line. Then you're throwing your body to the left to get to the other oh, side. It is predictable. Oh, son of a bitch. All right, you know ahead. what? And I'll tell you what happens is you get in a rhythm. Mm. And, oh, here's another thing that was I, I just meant You're not going to say, just do it. Like, you're not going to say, and correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. You're not going to say, get over to the right of the line in three steps, then three steps to the left and then five steps. It's not going to be you're, yeah. you're going <clears> to, <throat> what's going to happen is that you're going to go from left to right of the line and yeah. you're, and it's going to fall into a groove. You're not going to say, well, I'm going to do three steps or whatever. Right. You just, as soon as you get, as soon as you get to the left side of the line, it's time to go to the right side of the line. So you're maybe two steps on either side. You can't go four or five. Cause if you're jogging on the lakefront, you'd fall in the lake. You know what I mean? <laughs> just keep it like drifting. <laughs> the other thing I want to highlight because this is a thing that I do with people when I'm teaching them to run barefoot is something very similar. I go just hopefully we're in a place where there's little kids like two to three, because this is how they move. Their head is so damn heavy that they lean it in one direction or the other, and they try to keep up with their head and they can't. And That's so right. literally this is what I do with people. I go, don't, I, I'm, rather than being on a line, I go, just play with it. Just once you feel like you're starting to you know, catch yourself, then go in a different direction. Just use your head to pull you in a different direction 
because and don't let yourself catch up. And then eventually let them learn to catch up a little bit because by then they've gotten on their forefoot. They've started to, and another thing they've started doing is started having fun, which is another thing. People take this all way too seriously. And I always remind people, first of all, anyone else who's in this park doesn't know you. They're far enough away that they will never spot you in Whole Foods. They don't know who you are. And if you really are having fun, they're going to want to come and join you anyway. Where's the downside? This is a crazy thing that happened. I have to tell you this story. If there's any really great track coaches or athletes out there, you've got to hear this, okay? <laughs> so let's say you're running and you have a pace and you have this, your respirations are easy to match up with the speed of your running. So you're running, you're like, <sighs> and you have this speed and it's pretty much the same, okay? So what I noticed, which is so crazy, but it's explainable, is that when I started doing zigzag runs, I'd be running straight. Let's say I'm running straight like this. As soon as I transition to zigzag run, I'm like this. Same speed. And I'm like racking my brain. It was so noticeable. The respirations slow down because I was using less oxygen at the same speed running in zigzag patterns than running in straight paths. What in the heck is going on? <laughs> and what I thought of was that this is, might be sound crazy, but when you do zigzag runs, you use a different muscle group when you're coming, when you're turning to the left and then as you're going to the right on the zigzag, you rest that muscle group and then you use the other muscle group. Oh, interesting. You're resting the other one, but they're all providing this enough speed that you're going the same speed, but you have slower respirations, which means you're using less oxygen. And when I would, in my bare, when I would get up, say, five o'clock in the morning, Got to get to work. You don't have time. I would do a six-mile run on Lake on the Lake Michigan on the concrete path of the of Lake Michigan from Chicago. It would be like from Grand Avenue or Lake Point Tower where I live, and to Fullerton, which is like three miles, and then back. And I would do that in an hour. So it would be six miles in an hour barefoot. And when I did it zigzag the whole way. I remember when I tried to shove my foot into pronation, the tendons were so, the, the slingshot tendons were so strong that if I push my foot into pronation, just went, it snapped right back into the normal posture. Like I couldn't even, I, I was trying to oh, push it into pronation oh, <laughs> and I couldn't get it to stay. It was so strong. It just snapped right back into the neutral posture. And what's so great about running like that six miles was 3,000 impacts on the left side of the calf and 3,000 impacts on the right, which mm. creates this balance of strength within the pronation, supination uh, cuff, or we call it the spring suspension system cuff, that it equalizes, it creates an equal amount of strength through the slingshot that allows that pronation, supination to be equal. And 
you can't even push your foot into pronation. It's it. so strong. And like I said, it's equal. And instead of, oh, I went in the gym and I did some in, inversion, eversion with the uh, low pulley and a cuff, forget it. You yep. don't pick up like a box of uh, cereal with your foot. And if you want to know what puts you in the nursing home, go to the elevator and see the line of walkers, people with walkers. Because like I said before, if you want to fight aging, you need to go, you can't support the body with the orthotic because the next support is the cane. And the next one is the four prong walker, then yeah. the wheelchair, then you're bedridden, fully supported, okay? If you want to go that route, you're going to end up bedridden. You, you if you will, want to go the other way, work barefoot. You, you got love it. this story. In the very early days when we started the company, I had written a blog post commenting on a bit of research where they had taken these vibrating insoles and put them in the feet of, in the feet, in the shoes of older adults who had poor balance and found that it improved their balance. And I said, well, you don't need magic vibrating insoles. Just take off your shoes and go for a walk. And I got a, an email some time later from a guy, 82-year-old man, who said, I uh, heard about the magic vibrating insoles and I was looking for them, but I found your blog post instead. And since I couldn't even find the magic vibrating insoles, I thought I'd put your theory to the test. That was two weeks ago and I just threw away my walker. You know what? We used to have a like a big bucket in the office <clears throat> and it was full of canes. <laughs> oh my God. I swear That's to God. Great. That is great. When my dad and I were practicing, we had this, the office had wood paneling. That's how far it went back. Okay. Yeah. What's so crazy about wood paneling is if you put like a picture up and you hammer it into the wood paneling, it's like over. <laughs> wood paneling was a fad, but we had wood paneling and we had, we had a, a big bucket that was about two and a half feet high that had, that's where you put your cane. And every time we took the cane, you know, got the person off the cane, we said, your cane is in two weeks is going in that bucket right there. And we had a bucket full of canes. People would walk in, you go, was that bucket of canes for people when they can't walk? They You give them a cane so that they can walk out. No, when we take them away from them. And they were like, you take their canes away? What's wrong with you? They need their canes. Oh my God, I love it. Oh, you, I got a great story for you. Okay. So I hear... Now, I, I'm going to talk about this because it's he's passed away, but I heard from Bob Goldman, the guy who started NASM, the founder of NASM, the first personal training uh, certification program in the Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. He's my personal friend that, that Joe Weider was in a bad way, okay? Mm -hmm. He had a uh, surgery at Cleveland Clinic for his back. And sorry, wait, we have to do Joe Weider. For people who don't know Joe. Joe Weider had the first muscle magazine in 1939. Joe Weider started bodybuilding, the whole concept of bodybuilding. <clears throat> Joe Weider's first weights were, were sewer caps and train wheels, wagon wheels and train wheels with a yep. bar. Him and his brother, Ben Weider in Canada, would lift weights that were you know, uh, wagon wheels with a bar and nobody had dumbbells back then. You just lift rocks. Awesome. It was like the Flintstones, right? 
So Joe Weider started developing barbells and dumbbells, and he created this concept of bodybuilding and having symmetry. And that was when Charles Atlas was around. And that migrated into muscle and fitness magazine, Flex and um, Shape. And there were 7 million people that read Joe Weider's magazine every month. And if you got on the cover of Joe Weider's magazine, you were like a rock star. And those were the, and when Arnold was doing so well in Europe, Joe Weider paid to have Arnold come to America. He put him in an apartment, gave him a phone and said, you train here, I'll make you into a superstar. And the writings on the wall was eight time Mr. Olympia. That was Joe Weider's event, Mr. Olympia. So Sorry. Joe Weider was the father of bodybuilding when his books are out there and he was he was a god. He was a legend. He still is to us that we know him. But everybody wanted to know Joe Weider because then you could get in the magazine and get your 15 minutes of fame. I got a, I was working with the American Powerlifting Federation. I was the doctor for their whole national and world team. And I was at the meet. And then guys from bodybuilding would come to powerlifting because that was like a transition. These writers would come and they'd say, hey, who are you? What are you doing with these athletes? You're treating them backstage before they're lifting these heavy weights and all that. What's this technique you're using with the foot and all that? And then I started writing some articles for Muscle and Fitness. And then I got a call one day and I and it, we didn't have cell phones. Was one, it, somebody named Joe is on the phone. Hello, <laughs> Dr. Stockson. I like your articles. I want to put you on our advisory board for Muscle and Fitness Magazine. And I'm like, oh, God. Abdo or some somebody's pranking me. I'm like, yeah, okay, sounds good. Uh, hang up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Three months later, somebody calls me up and says, hey, man, you're in Muscle and Fitness Magazine on the editorial advisory board, which is like this slit that's right on like page three. <clears throat> month after month for 20 years I'm on the advisory board. So I find out that Joe Weider is had the surgery and he's in a wheelchair. He can't walk. Mm-hmm. I said to Bob, I said, Bob, I've got to go help Joe because he did so much for me. I'm going to go there. So Bob set it up. I went out there and he had a bunion on the right side. And the right side is where he had the operation. I know he's overpronating because he's twisting off that foot. So I said, okay, we had the vibassage. We blasted the muscles and did the, the human spring approach with the foot and the leg. And then the next day, he had about 10 Filipinos that were servants, Philippine gentlemen. They were really wonderful people, nice people. All Philippine people are usually very nice. They're very good with people. And they said, Joe got out of the chair on his own today. I said, is that normal? She said, no. He took a couple <laughs> steps. Oh, good. So I was fired up. This is after the one day. Second day, we work again. And I had this one girlfriend. Her name was Patricia. She was a cheerleader for the Seattle Seahawks. And Patricia was a, a Hispanic girl. And she was a very curvy. Let's call it that. Okay. So Patricia had all the curves in the right places, and she was a sweetheart with this cute Minnie Mouse voice, so sweet, nice, and wonderful girlfriend, lived in Los Angeles, and I lived in Chicago. I said, come 20 minutes early so you can, you got to see this guy. 
He's a legend. I had a lot of respect for him. So she comes, sits down on like on this bench by the window, and he's just being very polite and quiet. And I said, Joe, I have to go to the bathroom. So I got up and I went to the bathroom. When I came back, he had gotten off the table, the treatment table. The Filipinos weren't even in the room. Okay. He got up off the treatment table, walked all the way across the room without the walker. And he's sitting down on the morning bench thing with his, got his, my girlfriend's hand. He's holding her hand and he's looking into her eyes. Oh, you're so beautiful. You're wonderful. And she's giggling. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. He's sitting on my girl. 87 years old. Probably I was about 48 at the time. And I just, okay, Mr. Weeder, please, let's get back to the treatment now. Oh, my God. So he got up. So I said, okay, all right, then. All right, we'll see what's going to happen now. So when we got done, I knew I hit a home run. I had every muscle spasm out of his leg because I can tell when I push on, it doesn't hurt anymore. And there's no knot there. And in two days, it was done. I said, no, get up. He got up and I got real close to him like an umpire arguing with a manager in a baseball, like real close to his face like this. And I said, all right, now you walk across the room like you did 30 minutes ago. And there was the two Filipinos that were sitting on the bed there. He turned around, got his face and he took off like in a shot. Like (laughs) it was just like walking really fast and he was swinging his arms and he was really excited. <laughs> he turned around, came back, threw his legs up there. I was like, oh my God, what just happened? I can't believe that just happened. And the Filipinos were like, Mr. Weiner, slow down. You're going to fall. You're going to fall. Uh, <laughs> he was walking without his walker for a solid month after that. Occasionally he'd have a cane with him, but he was not with the, he was walking. And so that was one of the most thrilling cases. I love it. There were there are many cases. There's many stories. I could sit here for hours telling stories. In, in lieu of that, you've mentioned a couple of times, and I said we were going to talk about the Vibasage because this is a, an important piece of equipment, if you will, horrible word, for some of what you talked about of getting some of this inflammation out of the tissues, for working on these points where there is that that contraction going on as a arguably not necessarily necessary protective measure. So why don't we chat about that device? Okay. When I was growing up about eight years old, my father used to have this vibrating machine called the G5. (laughs) And when I was eight, it was fascinating, this little, this machine. So I'd use it. And then it was rudimentary. I was always fascinated with vibration massage. So I kind of worked with the company to help them distribute, but then they cut me out of a $40,000, I won't go into it, commission. (laughs) So I said I could sue them or I can start my own company. So I did. And I started my own company. I built a better vibration massage machine. And it was 2007 when I embarked upon that uh, journey. It was interesting. Our first prototypes would come in boxes with three layers of that crazy Chinese tape. And oh my God, we would plug it in. (laughs) And the girl say, okay, doctor, it's ready to check out. I had just come in from the cold, go in there, turn it on. It would start on smoking. So we went through (laughs) a lot of prototypes and learned a lot. 
That was way back. And then 2012, we came out with our first machine, and it was amazing. It was only $1,500. It was $900 cheaper than the competitor. It had a longer cord to be able to meander around the table and get to spots without dragging the machine around. It had a thicker cable, so it didn't break as often. It was more durable, and it was really slick looking. It still is. Beautiful machine. Very beautiful machine. So then one day... But to be clear, this is mostly for uh, people with a clinical practice. Yeah, this is for doctors. And I sold them all over the world. Team Doctors is the name of the company. So what happened was I'm watching online and I'm watching this, this video of this girl and she's got a guy with this massage gun and, she's, and he's jabbing it into her muscle. It's got a golf ball on the end, which is rounded. So why would you have a golf ball that has less surface area when you're trying to warm up the body? You don't put a golf ball on there. You put something that's got the biggest surface area possible. Am I going to do massage on you with my the tips of my fingers or I'm going to use my whole hand? It's like that. So it's simple. It's not a big deal. And also the parts on these things were so hard. They were hard plastic. So I was thinking to myself, <laughs> look at her face. She's cringing. And that's a sign of, of guarding. And so we're trying to relax a muscle to get the inflammation out or whatever we're trying to do. But we're hitting it with something that's harder than the actual muscle. It's got a pointed end, so to speak. And, we're, and it's coming from like, 16 millimeters away and it's jabbing the muscle i'm like what in the heck that can't nobody is going to take that thing seriously it's so <laughs> flawed in so many ways that there's no way that thing is going to sell plus it was really if you look at the old massage guns if you go back to 2009 google it up 2009 massage gun it was a variable speed jigsaw with a golf ball on the end of it now it's packaged differently to look like a therapeutic device. But in reality, it does the same thing. And I was thinking, wow, I could kill that. I could crush that thing. I could crush that with a better mousetrap, a better device. I have to actually fund all this stuff with all these in in inventions and innovations with funds that come from my medical practice. So I invested every penny into this new handheld, portable, and affordable that will be competing with the massage guns. And this is the Vibassage. And, so. and, and the word is, the, the name of it is very important. Because what it does is if you have a golf ball and you have a, if like the old, the guy who says, I have a pineapple, I have a pen, pineapple pen. Okay, so if you have a golf ball and you have your hand, is it, would you think, of, let's say, I'm going to do a massage on you. Oh, good. But what I'd like to do is take this golf ball and I want to put it in my hand and I want to hit you with it. Where <laughs> Are you out of your mind? Don't you do that. I'm leaving later. Please, can I have my money back? Like, why would anyone think that would work? And so what I did with my device is I made it duplicate the human hand as close to possible close as humanly possible and also duplicate the size first so the size of the device is 20 times 
larger than the biggest applicator pad for the massage gun. 20 times bigger. It's five inches around. Okay. So it gets 20 times more tissue at the same time. So when you're doing that, you're actually stimulating more oxygen into more cells, creating more heat. And the heat actually liquidates the gel l- liquid interstitial fluid that's between the skin and the muscle faster to get it moving so that lymphatics start moving faster, move the the poison toxins, lactic acid, and inflammation from the muscle to the drainage points at the armpit and at the and at the um, groin faster. And the second thing about it is <clears throat> that it's got a bull nose edge to it so that you can use it actually massage. You can actually turn it on, okay? Wait, while you're doing this, you, you I, can I, actually, I want to describe, I just want to describe really quickly for, for people. So yeah. ignoring for the moment the shape of it where it has handles for either you or someone to hold it and press it and move it against you, the head of the thing that's actually doing the massage it's like you mentioned about five inches in diameter and it's soft and it, because the way the edge works, if you do want to get something a little more directed, you can put it on edge and it still works and feels great. It has a completely different feeling than any other massage device you will ever experience. And it's the kind of thing that in my experience, I've used massage guns and maybe it feels like maybe something happened, but you use this for a few minutes on pretty much any part of your body and you get up and say, oh no, something definitely just changed. Okay, so what I did was I put a bullnose edge so that it will, what you can do is you can, it, what it's going to do, first of all, <clears throat> the surface of the applicator pad actually is, I wanted to duplicate the hand because what we're trying to avoid is that guarding effect. What we want people to do is not, oh, tighten up when we're trying to relax it because it doesn't feel good. We want people to relax into the massage so it can do its job and get yeah. into the muscles. So what I did was I, I took a, a durometer, which is what you use in, in, in plastics in the rubber industry to measure the hardness of materials so that you would take a durometer and you put it into a gummy bear and it would measure 10 shore A. That's a, on a scale of one to 100. And you put it into hard plastic, like a hard piece of plastic like this, and you're going to have a 90 shore A. <laughs> the massage gun, like the massage gun fork and the tamper are 90 shore A, okay? And so then what we're going to do is we're going to measure the stiff or the hardness of muscle. And then what we did was we measured the hardness of also collaborated or uh, back-checked with other research that's the the softness of skin is 30 shore A and the fluid layer between the skin and the muscle is 30 shore A, okay? So you have a softer layer that where all the lymphatics are. All the lymphatics are directly under the skin. I'm talking about 80% of the lymphatics that cleanse muscles and organs of and all the bacteria and the viruses that affect you, like when you get a cut or whatever, they go through the lymphatics. Like carbon dioxide, oxygen go through the blood vessels because they have 
small openings. Mm. But lymphatics are big pipes that pull bigger molecules like protein molecules and viruses and bacteria that can't enter through the outer covering of the artery and the vein because <clears throat> who wants to get a septicemia blood infection? So there's a protective uh, coating that doesn't allow those larger particles into the, into, the, into the arteries and the veins. So what happens is I said, okay, let's make the pad surface the exact hardness of muscle. Okay. So I went to the chemical, like 25 chemical companies. Oh, I can't tell you that. And I said, I need this material to measure exactly 50 shore A or 60 shore A, the exact hardness of muscle. Because what it's going to do is if you have a hand and put it on somebody's face, you're comfortable because you've felt that before. The nervous system doesn't react with guarding if a hand is put on you for a massage. Like massage could be rough or it could be soft. Too soft, not therapeutic. Too rough, inflammatory. So we want it just perfect. So we, I created the surface of the pad to be the exact softness of human muscle. So essentially what it does, Stephen, is it will sink through, it will sink through the soft layer, the skin and the lymphatic layer, and it will lay right on the surface of the muscle and create a vibra pump, which is low amplitude. When it pumps down on the muscle, it squeezes the lymph, lymph the inflammation and lactic acid and cellular debris and other toxins from the muscle. When we do deep tissue, we apply pressure point to the muscle. What do you think happens? They make up all these like neurological reflexes or whatnot. No, please simplify this. You are pushing the inflammation out of this spongy thing called the muscle. And then when it gets into the fluid space around it called the interstitial fluid space, if you leave it there doing just a deep tissue treatment or massage, it'll go right back into the muscle, okay? It, it would be cleaning like something out of a lake and leaving it on the shore. Why? If it rains, it goes right back in the lake, you bonehead. Take it and put it in a truck and take it as far away from the lake as possible, okay? What we're going to do after the deep tissue, we push the inflammation out of the muscle with the pressure, is we're going to sweep it away through the lymphatics in the direction of the drainage point, okay? What happens with infections is it goes through this lymphatic piping from, let's say, the hand. You have an infection in your hand or inflammation or whatever it is, cellular debris. It's going to go from the hand <clears throat> through these pipes between the skin and the muscle and this interstitial fluid into the armpit where the lymph nodes are. The lymph nodes have these like killer cells that will kill the infection. And the reason why you kill the infection, essentially what it does is it sterilizes this fluid for you, the lymph nodes. Isn't that amazing? That's why our lymph nodes get swollen when you are infected, like your mom check your lymph nodes. Let me check your glands if they're swollen because they're working, okay? So they're cleansing the body of all the crud, the lymph system, okay? And do you know that three and a half quarts of lymph fluid are drained through the lymph system per day? 
three and a half, almost a gallon of lymph goes through this lymph system, cleansing the surface of the muscle, the organs, the intestines, and going through this cleansing and sterilizing system. And then it's right here at the base of the neck. It works its way through these smaller, then bigger pipes and bigger into the biggest one, which is the, the long thoracic duct. And that goes to where your jugular vein meets the vein from the arm, like that triangle. And it inserts there and all that lymphatic fluid goes into that vein. And then it takes it through the heart, back through the aorta, and then it rolls into, it, it flows into the two kidneys and the kidneys urinate it out for you. So it's cleansing system. Now, I always ask this question. Do you want to get better fast or slow? <laughs> fast. Okay, good, good, good. Do you want to get better really fast? If you want to get better fast, you'll come in every day. Every day. Do you want to get better fast or slow? Oh, fast. Okay, I'll see you every day. <clears throat> Do you want to get better really fast? Yes. Okay, Anthony Field. I'll, from the Wiggles, 2000. I'm going to treat you all day, like eight hours. Yeah, yeah. Next day is chronic pain, clinical depression, suicidal. I'm going to treat you all day today, too. We're going to do that vivisage, deep tissue, vivisage, deep tissue, rinse and repeat, clean the tissue, rinse it out, push it to the lymphatics, urinate it out, take a glass of water, do it again, and cleansing. Because you have this powerful tool that actually it pumps in the oxygen when you push it down and, or actually it, it pushes the inflammation and lactic acid out in the cellular debris. When it viper pumps down, when it pulls back, it's similar to taking, if you take a sponge full of ink and you take your hand and you stick it into an aquarium and it's fresh water in the aquarium. When you squeeze the sponge out, you can see the ink coming into the aquarium water. When you let go of it, it sucks the clean aquarium water into the sponge. How about that? Or if you put a sponge under running water and you squeeze it, release it, squeeze it, release it, squeeze it, release it, five or six of those, it's clean, you put it on the counter. If you, you could do the same thing with the muscle, like we do deep tissue, it pushes the inflammation out of the muscle. Don't think of these neurologic reflexes. Keep it simple, okay? And then it's in the interstitial fluid layer. Okay, now we use the Viber pump. We push it out. Then when we release it, it's sucking all this clean interstitial fluid back into the muscle, which hydrates it very quickly. You can't see it, but if you slow this down with a slow motion camera, it's wobbling. But when it's moving real fast, it means it's cleaning you fast, okay? So the low amplitude, what it's doing is pushing the lactic acid, inflammation, cellular debris, whatever's in the muscle that's not healthy. And then when it releases, it sucks the, it draws in the inner clean interstitial fluid that has the oxygen dissolved into it. Mm. Because a fish tank has fish in it. And you have this bubble thing that's going up through the fish tank. And you think that the oxygen's coming from the bubble, but the oxygen, the bubble just breaks the surface of the fish tank so that the oxygen from the atmosphere can enter the fish tank. 
Just like if you spray water over the surface of the fish tank to keep breaking that surface tension to let the oxygen enter the water and it's dissolved in the water. You can't see it. Right. The fish pull it out of the, the dissolved oxygen in the gills and they breathe off of that. Cells are like fish. <laughs> Cells, they yeah. are. Yeah, they no, are you're right. Even. No, they no, are. I get it. It's a great analogy. You gotta get it. Yeah. Because when the oxygen, when the cell comes to the endpoint of the arterial, the oxygen falls off the cell into the interstitial fluid. It gets dissolved in that interstitial fluid, like in, dissolved in a fish tank. It flows to the closest cell. It pulls it from the interstitial fluid and breathes off of it, just like a fish will breathe off of the water in a fish tank, okay? So when you're pumping this interstitial fluid with this vibration with a big applicator pad, <clears throat> oxygen, nutrients going in, lymph crud coming out, you keep cleansing, rinse and repeat, and then create the flow with the applicator pad massaging towards the lymphatic drainage yeah. points. Yeah. You're moving it to the lymphatic drainage points to get the inflammation out so it doesn't go back in and start the whole process over again. That's great. And you know what's happening now? You can go to Team Doctors Academy YouTube channel. Steven, I got to let you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been taking people with severe chronic pain and getting them out of pain in five to seven days with this special treatment to super wealthy people that want to pay 3000 a day to have me in their living room, like people in the Hamptons and celebrity entertainers that don't have time for three days a week office visits in your neighborhood. They're on tour. Like Anthony Field was a two-day treatment that got rid of his chronic pain in three, two and a half days. I've been doing this for years, but I didn't talk about it because I didn't want to make waves. I said the hell with that. And if you go to Team Doctors Academy you'll see some testimonials from patients that have the worst chronic pain that you could ever imagine. And they're amazing. And th they've had it for 25, 30 years. And because we are cleaning that inflammation out so fast with the combination of the deep tissue and the vibrissage plow, vibration plow effect. It's amazing. It's mind blowing how fast they're getting better. And here's another thing. We just got a call from a big production company in Los Angeles that wants to do a, a television show about it. Oh, I love it. We're actually gearing up for the sizzle reel this week where we have a girl who's been to 30 doctors, she's got severe chronic pain. She's got depression from the high levels of inflammation in her brain. And we're going to do a backstory film and then we're going to have her come and see me and we're going to see how quickly we can get out, get her out of pain each day, filming her reaction. And then we're going to present it to them for this uh, reality show. Well, Hey, good luck with that. B sadly, a week ago on forever, but we have to wrap this up. If for no other reason that long story, anyway, you just hinted at it for team doctors Academy on YouTube, but if people want to find out more about what you're doing, find out more about Vivasage, tell them where to go. You can go to, if you want to order a unit or you could go to, teamdoctorsusa.com or teamdoctors.com. I think that teamdoctorsusa.com is best. But as you can see, one thing about the Vibasage got a, such it's got this oh, softness of the human hand, 
It's also got the elasticity of the human hand. And so it wraps around the body part like my head. I could put it right on my face. It keeps you from getting muscles injured. And so that's where you can pick up a unit. If you want to find out more about if you have severe chronic pain and you'd like to have us look at your case and see what we can do to get you out of pain really quickly, you just call, text me, call me. People are like, you give out your home phone number. So we'll put that info in the show notes rather than giving it out here, but we'll put it in the show notes so you can check that out and you can find, and we, and sorry, I do, we do, I have to run. I've got a meeting with a bunch of important human beings. And, and so first of all, a pleasure to catch up. You were part of the original, how do I want to put it? Supporters of what we were doing, which was really, we're incredibly grateful. And of course, what zero has become is something way beyond what we ever imagined. And I do hope people check out, go all the research about the vibe massage. Again, check the show notes. We'll have info on how to reach out to, to James if you want to deal with whatever issues you have as quickly as you can. And just a reminder, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com for previous episodes, all the ways you can engage with us on social media. If you want to drop me an email with any comments, requests, people you want to have that you think I should talk to, you can send me an email at move, M-O-V-E at jointhemovementmovement.com. But most importantly, between now and whenever we bump into each other again, go out, have fun, and lift life feet first.